0: Hi friends, it's Mick jumping in here real quick. So this is actually a redo of our very first episode on Erica Baker. Between the time when I was putting this episode together again and when I was editing it, we were able to kind of track down a long-form podcast on the Erica Baker story done by a Dayton news channel called Missing Erica Baker. Um so they were able to fill in some gaps, get a hold as kind of more professional journalist um, Some missing information, brand new interviews, police tapes, and recordings that were not available at the time when we did this originally. So I am going to kind of pop in at various times and kind of fill in some of that information because it kind of brings a new light and some clarity to the story that I think was kind of frustrating the first time that we did it. I do really recommend everybody listen to Missing Erica Baker for more details to hear kind of directly from the family the detectives and other people involved in this case but really really recommend it luckily now we're going to be able to fill in some gaps and some missing information kind of put to rest and shed some light on various suspicions and questions that we had the first time we did this story but we hope you enjoy thank you
1: Welcome back to Mid Wretched friends.
0: Welcome back to Mid-Wretched. We are very excited to see you.
1: Hear you. We are for you to listen yes, to us.
0: Excited. Um. For you to hear us.
1: Uh, I'm Tommy. Welcome back. I am Mick. Welcome. Yes. This is gonna be um well, it's gonna be a little bit of a different thing this week because we are, or you are. <laughs> I'm just gonna sit here and drink this Coke Zero and listen, but uh you are retelling slash redoing an old episode a vintage yeah i am redoing an old episode our
0: first episode actually like i mentioned at the at the end of our last episode i really wanted to go back to this case now as kind of a more confident storyteller um somebody who has found a little bit more of their voice yes i was thinking about this like as i was going through and like prior to us starting this podcast, I had like zero storytelling or writing experience at all.
1: Yeah, well, you had plenty of like research writing. I mean, you wrote a whole last dissertation, yeah. but not a lot of like more of this kind of like journalistic sort of no narrative like, stuff. Yeah.. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And when I get very nervous, I'm like, okay, well, what does this person I like do? What does this person I like do? Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's very masking. And the longer we've gone on doing this, I feel a little bit more like I have found a voice and feeling more confident in it. So that's why I wanted to retell the story, because I do feel like it deserves a good telling.
1: Um, It does. It totally
0: does. And I want to do right by it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it deserves it deserves better from both of us. I mean, those were also the days where like what the first episode was, was us sitting on the screened-in porch of a cabin in Baraboo, Wisconsin, (laughs) like kind of doing our best and just like trying to figure out like, how does audio work? How does... No
0: clue. like No clue. And if we're
1: in the same place together, like how do we know when one person talks and the other one talks, you know? And then like the nervous laughing, the nervous giggling that just didn't do the case justice. It got our feet sweat. And we'll appreciate it for that. But I really think it's cool that you've found a voice, and I want you to get to use it. Yay! <laughs> Yay! So now I'm nervous in a different way. Yes. Yeah, so
0: I'm ready. Yay! One thing that I will mention is I found while um, we were re- while I was kind of just redoing this case, uh, there is now a long form podcast on this case from a local like. Literally really? is just out. Like very, very new. Um, I like I said, I just found it. I haven't even gotten a chance to totally listen to it all the way through.
1: Wow, is that
0: yeah, funny? it's called Missing Erica Baker. So if you guys want more information than what we're gonna cover, definitely check it out. So kudos to that guys. Check that out. I'm really glad that it got like a long form podcast. Obviously, they're going to have way more details than we do, Um, but we're going to kind of dive right in. So today we're going to be going back to Kettering, Ohio, the place where I was born, the neighbor to where I grew up. Kettering, and I say this with all the love in my heart, is an entirely typical Ohio suburb.
1: It totally is. Middle
0: class, residential, welcoming. It definitely blends into the landscape. Mm -hmm. It's a really lovely little spot. It was a great place to grow up in Beaver Creek and Kettering. It's a family town. It's got lots of parks, lots of community events. And that's actually at one of the parks is where we're going to kind of start our story at the Kettering Recreation Center. So the Kettering Recreation Center and the Attached Park Indian Riffle Park, really kind of the epicenter of this story and kind of the center of the community in Kettering it's you know a center it's got swimming pools ice rinks parks they host a ton of community events classes kids tournaments all of that good stuff and that was what was going on on the night of our story on the night of february 7th 1999 there was a big local hockey tournament going on that day it was also for a february night a pretty mild day for an ohio winter (laughs) Mm. Relatively mild enough that there were a lot of people out walking their dogs, kind of enjoying, like, a relatively sunny day.
1: I feel like so many awful stories start with, like, the one unseasonably nice day in February. Yeah. I mean, I I hate to hearken back to Delphi all the time, but, that, you know, like, the Valentine's Day week, it was, like, a nice day, and mm-hmm. then... Everyone's going to the park and bad stuff happens. So just for like a point of clarity, I just want to make sure I'm picturing it the right way. If I remember correctly, like, okay. So it's Indian. This is where it's Indian riffle or ripple. Indian
0: riffle is the park.
1: Indian ripple is the road. Okay. So I needed that clarification. I remember asking it before and I like could not remember it. Yeah. So then this park and recreation center It's huge, right? Like, it's really, really big. So, like, when we say a park, we're not talking about, like, your neighborhood park with, like, a playground and, like, two swings or whatever. You're talking about, like, a very large, like, multiple dozens of acres kind of park, right? It's
0: 95 acres. It has a lake. It has all of these different things. But it is also, again, just, like, kind of nestled in a really residential community, you know, surrounded by relatively busy streets Um, but also there's a lot of little just community housing and all of that stuff kind of surrounding it. It's a really popular little neighborhood for the Kettering area because it's by the park, it's by schools, it's an awesome Mm. place. Um, and that is where the Baker family lived. Melissa Baker lived in that area with her four children. She had three sons and a daughter, Erica, who was just nine. She was the youngest of the family. Their father, Greg, lived separately as the parents had divorced prior. Um, But always up to this point, they always really parented really amicably. They shared custody of the kids. They saw both parents pretty evenly from what it sounds like. Erica was described as a really loving and lively little girl. Her mom said that she loved school, adored it. While she was kind of walking or dancing her way to the bus stop every morning, she would kind of blow kisses to her mom, wave, always had a huge smile on her face. Her parents said that she could be a princess when she wanted to, but she also really knew how to kind of keep up with her older brothers she loved being outdoors, swimming, camping, fishing—all of that stuff. She was an active girl. She was a tough girl. That brings us to February seventh. So that's where we're kind of, kind of start our story here. February seventh, nineteen ninety nine. Um, Erica had spent that morning or that day with her dad, actually. Just kind of going out, doing dad-daughter things. She seemed to have had a good time with her dad. But reportedly, as the evening ended, um, her and her dad got into a little bit of a tiff because her dad had forgotten to buy tickets to the daddy-daughter dinner dance um, that Erica had been so looking forward to.
1: Oh, man. So needless
0: to say, she was a little frustrated, a little heartbroken all at the same time. But whatever happened, it seemed like Greg kind of smoothed it out with her. He made an effort to make it up to her. And by the afternoon, when he dropped off Erica with her mom, she was in good spirits again. And she was kind of ready for the day. Mm -hmm. He dropped her off at Sunday afternoon around three o'clock. Erica got home. She didn't have much to do. and It seemed like she was kind of muddling around the house for a little bit.
1: As one does when you're nine and bored. <laughs> when you're
0: nine and bored and you're like, I don't have any homework and there's no one here to play with. and I need something mm-hmm. to do. So Erica asked her mom if she could take their dog, a uh, Little Shih Tzu, for a walk around Indian Riffle Park. The park was only about a five minute walk from their home. So it is a big park, but I think that Erica kind of knew the areas to go to, the areas that she was comfortable walking around in, and the areas that she would get in trouble if she went too far into.
2: Mm, yeah.
0: Since it was about a five-minute walk, Melissa said, yes, just be home by dark. Which I'm also thinking kind of, this is February in Ohio.
1: If Dark is probably about dinner time would be my guess, right? Like six? Dark
0: is about like Five, four, thirty-five. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, dusk for sure. Yeah.
0: Also, guessing she didn't actually expect Erica to be out for an hour or more than twenty minutes. To be completely honest,
1: I'd imagine you just expect her to kind of like walk the dog around the block or like up and down, Mm -hmm. walk to the park and back the street. Yeah, it is really cute around that park. These little neighborhoods are really, really. Isn't
0: it so adorable? It is. Mm -hmm. It's hardcore Americana out there.
1: Mm, it totally is. It's really Welcome cute. Welcome to my childhood. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> and the beauty that it produced. Uh-huh. <laughs> I will do a Google Street View of my childhood sometime. <laughs> it would be a little bit less cute.
0: So anyway, Melissa says, be safe, take the dog, just be home before dark. So... Erica throws on her pink raincoat over her pink sweatshirt and heads out with the puppy to the park. Um, and now our timeline moving forward here is pieced together from various witnesses, um, who really just kind of got quick glances of Erica, including kind of our primary witness here, Carol Strine and her husband, they were at Indian riffle, taking advantage of the weather to walk their dogs at the park as well. They saw. Erica, with her pink raincoat and pink sweatshirt, she kind of stood out like a little adorable Mm. (laughs) kid that she was. Really just kind of happily sitting on a bench. I imagine her just kind of kicking her little rain boots while the dog sniffs around and without really a care in the world. As the Strines circled the park on their walk, they noted, and this was right around 345, they saw the little girl in the pink leave the park and head toward Indian Riffle Middle School. So this would have been kind of still her moving away from the house, but not in like a weird direction, not in anything that would kind of like set off alarm bells to
1: anybody. Mm-hmm. It could have, that could have easily been like your out and back walk. Yeah. Like that's kind of what I pictured it. Like she's walking. Yeah, Cause there is a trail that goes through that part of the yeah, park. Like
0: she's walking toward the school, just walking along with the puppy. And that's also Mm -hmm. right along Stroop Road, which is kind of the main road, the main in and out Yeah. A short while later, as they're finishing up their walk, the Strines would walk past the middle school area where they would find the little shih tzu that they had previously seen, hiding in a doorway of the middle school, shivering and shaking from the cold as the sun was going down. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So the sun's going down, it's getting darker, it's getting colder, they kind of were a little surprised a little scared when they saw the dog because they had recognized it from just not too long ago that it was with this little girl they called the dog over who ran to them still dragging its leash so i'm guessing kind of they just thought that oh she like lost the handle the dog chased after something i did this a hundred times as a kid I lost hold of the leash. Of, <laughs> I lost hold of the leash, and my dog would just go chase after squirrels or something. Mm. Uh, and I'm guessing that's what they thought happened. They waited a while while they looked around to see if they saw the little girl. But eventually, they decided to call animal control and take it to the shelter so that they could find its owners before they returned home themselves. Hey, let's uh, continue in with our first correction here. So the Strines actually shared that. They were pretty scared as soon as they saw the dog because the way that they had seen it and its kind of affect and presentation, they kind of knew that something bad had happened. Seeing Erica playing with her and the kind of dog being so happy and being so playful, there was a big change in tone and nervousness and just kind of feelings from the dog. So that kind of set off pretty immediate alarm bells for the stride. So they called the police um, and then the police took it to animal control But they had always had kind of a suspicion that something kind of scary had happened, which is why they were pretty alert in our next segment here. Meanwhile, back at the Baker home, the sun was going down and Melissa Baker was really starting to worry. It was getting darker. It was getting colder. It was getting really rainy and wet and Erica hadn't come home yet. Melissa tried to wait a while, kind of trying to talk herself down, but by about 515 15, she began to really frantically search the neighborhood. Like I said, in February, night falls fast in Ohio.
1: Yeah, it really does. You're right.
0: So she kind of started just, you know, up and down the streets, going to the park, searching the places that she knew kind of Erica might have been, maybe the places that she liked to play at, looking in hiding spots, maybe knocking on friends' houses, things like that. But when nothing turned up, she really quickly ran home and called the police to get them involved. The police answered quickly. The police were out there at the park. So quickly, in fact, that by 8 p.m. that night, this was just a few hours after Erica had left the house with the dog, there was already an extensive search in effect in the area. They had police searching. They had volunteers. They had dogs. By 9 p.m., they had boats out searching Indian Ruffle Lake. Oh. they really wasted no time getting people out there
1: that's a really incredible police response to be honest like that's really really amazing
0: if you think 5 15 melissa leaves the house to search for her daughter i'm guessing she was back in the home calling the police by no later than 5 45
1: yeah i i mean personally like as a mommy i would not probably spend more than 15 20 minutes looking before i would call
0: and if you think by then, like, that's just within a couple of hours. Police have a massive search underway in the area mm. for this girl. Dozens of people showed up on this, like, gross, getting colder by the minute February night to look for the nine-year-old girl. Local news was on the scene reporting live and asking anyone if they had information to to call in. I remember a lot of this because they had the police and the news trucks and everything out there by between like eight and nine and I was about I was just shy of 12 years old when this happened so I remember like watching tv I'm pretty sure it was the x-files was on around this time Mm
2: -hmm. and
0: them cutting in the news coming on and kind of all of the alerts to be out missing that look looking for this missing girl I remember it all over the news the next morning when I was getting ready for school
1: I just feel like stuff like that like It strikes you as a kid so harshly. Like, I would just imagine, like, you're not that much older than her, Mm -hmm. right? You're three years older than her, like, give or take, right? And you don't look dissimilar as kids either, you know? I feel like that's just, like, I don't know. Like, that's really jarring. I remember seeing, if I saw, like, a missing child poster that, like, looked like me or was the same age as me, like, it really just... Got to me as a kid I don't know if you had that experience too but like I feel like this would have really gotten to me in your shoes
0: it was really weird because to this day like you can still drive around areas of Dayton and Kettering and you will still see uh, missing Erica Baker mm-hmm. posters and they are they're this bright pink or they were this bright pink when I was a kid and they were everywhere and it was definitely one of those things that I don't know if I was a weird kid or if any of our other listeners would do the same thing but it was always like if I'm at the mall I'm like looking around just like and I don't know just like
1: naturally doing that Mm me too 100% probably why we're so creepy
0: my first job was in Kettering and Oakwood and I always just remember thinking about that families Mm. would come in and when kids would come in Which is also, again, probably why I get so nervous when I tell this story.
1: Yeah, it just hits really close to home.
0: And I remember everybody really, really thinking they're going to find her. They're going to find her. And, you know, people were out there for days. But there were really very, very few witnesses that were able to come forward. Like I said, there was a hockey tournament that night. There were a lot of people at the park. And I just think by the time she went out to the park, It was probably getting a little dusky. There were kids all over the place. It would be really hard to kind of distinguish one kid from another.
2: Sure, yeah.
0: So it was already a messy evening by the time that the police got out there for Erica. It was raining. It was getting cold. I think the rain really fucked up everybody's search. Because if you think about it, any footprints, fingerprints, any blood evidence that we typically look for it would be gone nearly immediately. But of course, again, that like, it doesn't mean that people didn't want to help. Hundreds of people were there searching through the park, searching the middle school, searching the rec center. Did she get lost? Is she just missing somewhere? By February 8th, they had drained the entire pond.
1: That's wild because it's not a small pond. Like, it's a testament to how seriously this search was taken. You know, because that that was not a small job. That was not like a retaining pond in your subdivision. That's a decent sized little thing, you know?
0: I think about this because when we talked about other cases, how long do police wait to like drain or to drag a pond? Mm -hmm. Like weeks, months, if they ever get around to doing it. And the Kettering PD was like, "Uh uh-uh, no, we're finding this girl.
1: Yeah, we're draining this thing right now.
0: Really, unfortunately never no evidence ever really shook out from all of those searches there was no trace of clothing there was no trace of blood there was nothing and her parents would spend month after month after month searching they opened the erica baker recovery center her face was on the cover of people magazine just trying to get awareness just trying to get somebody to come forward to answer this Celebrities like Sarah Jessica Parker were even putting out PSAs and alerts, begging people for information. Mm -hmm. The bakers went on Oprah to tell their story and to ask for help. Like this was not a small case that they were ever going to let kind of fall to, to history. Yeah. And as I was thinking about this, I was always thinking about like how hard it is to be both in that like active recovery like searching for your daughter and also grieving at the same time
1: yes i think yes, about
0: this all yes. the time i thought about this with johnny Gosch. i think about this with mm-hmm. so many like the the delphi girls the Sean family Hornbeck, Sean delphi, yep. and i don't i don't know how people keep it together and i think that it really is just like the hope that keeps them going
1: yeah um i mean i feel like like it's cheesy but i don't know certainly it's my experience that you learn a lot about your own fortitude when you're faced with really impossible stuff. Right. Like yeah. I feel like most people think like I could never handle X, Y, and Z until you have no choice, but to handle it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you just do.
0: And then you just do like, you don't even question it. You're just doing whatever you can do. And it, yeah. in every single interview with Melissa and Greg, you can tell how hard it is for them and how determined they are. Like they work their asses off. This was a 24 hour a day job. Mm. Mm-hmm. They were putting out flyers, billboards, notices everywhere. That pink billboard is burned into my memory. So months pass with really few leads until June 14th, 1999. So about four months later, they finally have one kind of shaky lead. They got the name Christian Gabriel. They got his name in relation to a theft that had occurred that night at the local mire. When interviewed by the police, Gabriel had stated that, yes, he was, in fact, in the area that night. He admitted to the theft of the Kettering Meyer. And when questioned about Erica, he stated something could have happened on the drive home. And that was really it.
1: So the, just to clarify, the night that he robbed the Myers was the night that Erica went missing. It wasn't that night in June.
0: Yeah, And that was when he said, yeah, something could have happened on the drive home. But that was all he was willing to say. Um, Police question him about the van that he was driving that night during the robbery. And he says, I sold the van the following week after because I got into a car accident.
1: Which is like totally a normal and inconspicuous thing to do. Right. Like, totally typical. Like, I definitely, every time I get into a car, I'm like, okay, I'm going to sell this car now. Boop.
0: When he tells the police that he had sold his van, police then start a search to recover the vehicle, which they were finally able to do. So they recover the van that Gabriel was driving that night, and they take it to the Miami Valley Regional Crime Lab. Unfortunately, at this point, they found no evidence related to Erica's body. No DNA, no blood, no nothing. Mm. Again, this was four months after the disappearance. This was after a night of rain, a night of mud, and they have nothing to go on. So Gabriel is dropped as a suspect at that time. Mm. More months are going to go by with false starts and clues that go nowhere at one point they found a pink winnie the pooh sweatshirt um in germantown ohio that they thought might have been hers germantown is about 20 minutes from kettering but the family confirmed that it wasn't her sweatshirt it wasn't what she was wearing that night and the case stalls for a really really long time there's nothing really to go on it was like she just disappeared into thin air yeah at some point in the early 2000s there were so few leads that they just started gathering up everybody with a history of child molestation they just start gathering up anyone with a history of anything you have to
1: do that in a search Mm -hmm. yeah
0: but even then they find nothing nothing comes out of the search the parents had passed polygraphs not that there was ever any like major suspicion i know that that's always kind of the first Mm go-to but they were ruled out pretty immediately like i said they were frantic eventually at one point in the year 2000 so about a year a little left over a year afterward they get a lead on a car accident that had happened that night right around indian Rifle park so again gabriel had mentioned something might have happened on the drive home he mentioned that he sold his car because it was in a wreck so they're starting to get leads they start to investigate what was this car accident Um, the accident they managed to trace back to a woman named jan franks franks uh, was a woman that had a history of substance abuse and a long history of arrest related to substance abuse petty theft that sort of thing the research that they managed to put together on this accident indicated that it involved jan franks and three other passengers including christian gabriel A formal investigation into the accident began in 2000 and would continue for well over a year before they were finally able to file, before they finally had enough evidence to file charges in the accident. Hey, Mick jumping in here again. So... What has kind of come out, um, been recently released with the podcast, is that the tip on this car accident and the incidents that we're going to talk about actually came in from one of the alleged passengers, Clifford Butts. He was in jail when he heard about the case on America's Most Wanted. And shortly after, he contacted the police to give them a tip. Basically, his story is that... He had been with Jan Franks and Christian Gabriel that night. However, they were not in the car at the time. The other passenger was his wife. They claimed that they had been with Gabriel and Franks that night. However, they were not in the car at the time of the accident. Later that night at Christian Gabriel's apartment, Gabriel confessed to him that they had hit a little girl after they had committed the robbery at the Meijer. So we will talk a little bit about kind of some questions later in the podcast about kind of where is Clifford Butts and all of this. And it would appear that kind of based on the research and the investigation how it followed that both Clifford Butts and his wife were cleared of any wrongdoing in this, that they were not in the car at the time. And because they were cooperative in sharing information with the police, no charges were filed against them in this case. That was new information that I had not been aware of that I don't think really was released, but it does kind of help answer some questions that we had had initially several years ago about kind of where is Clifford Butts? Who was this other unknown person? Unfortunately, in early 2001, Jan Franks died suddenly. And with the passing of Franks, the investigation stalled to a dead halt. Mm. Police were hopeful, however, that Franks might have revealed some information about what happened that night to her husband or to her lawyer. Now, obviously, we know there is like spousal privilege and there's privilege between a lawyer and a client. So they can't demand that they release any of that information Mm
2: -hmm.
0: however her husband at the time Frank's husband was willing to come forward and was willing to talk unfortunately he said listen i would share any information with you that i had but i don't have any she never told me anything that happened that night like i don't i can't tell you He actually happened to be in jail at the time um, of the accident.
1: Yeah. Did she have a particular criminal history up until that point? Drug
0: possession. um,
1: Yeah. Okay. So those little, little things.
0: Yeah. I think it was a lot of cocaine. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And I think like just related charges, nothing like grievous. Here's the thing. So in Ohio, attorney-client privilege persists even after a person's death.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: however a spouse can waive that privilege so basically the privilege and the ability to kind of reveal information or not gets transferred to your spouse after you die
1: oh that's interesting yeah i didn't know that hmm.
0: so if like i had some crazy history where if i was living in ohio i don't know the laws in illinois if I had committed a crime and I didn't tell my husband, but I did tell my lawyer, I suddenly died. My wonderful husband could tell my lawyer, "Go ahead, confess to all the crimes. Mm, tell the world so what tell the world what Mick did." Because <laughs> I—that's a lot of power to view and grab. <laughs> he he revels in it. He revels in it. I know he does. He would just want to know what I did that I didn't tell him. But anyway, so yeah, according to Ohio law, attorney-client privilege is able to be waived if you pass away, your spouse is able to waive it. Meaning that Jan Frank's husband told her lawyer, her lawyer's name was Beth Lewis, said, hey, you know what, just go ahead, tell the police everything that they need to know. Mm. And so police are like, cool, you're going to tell us everything, right? Because you're allowed to. There's nothing holding you back. And Beth Lewis says, no.
1: That is very confusing for me.
0: Yeah. What's confusing?
1: Well, like, at this point, what does Beth Lewis have to lose by sharing that information? Nothing. Her client's dead. Like, what reason is there to keep it unless it directly implicates somebody else?
0: That's all that I can imagine. And there Mm -hmm. have been rumors kind of going around about why because she refused to tell police she was held in contempt of court um and the case went all the way up to the ohio supreme court but to this day she has refused to speak Hmm. so that is the only thing i can imagine was that she was protecting somebody else or there were rumors that like she was
1: afraid of like drug lords or whatever drug dealers Mm. whatever I'm not buying that. I feel like whatever Jan Franks knew implicated somebody else. Like, from what it sounds like she was into, it doesn't sound like she was rolling with, like, the Sopranos, right? <laughs> like, she's not in with the Mid-Ohio Mafia, like, drug lords yes, and the, gangsters. The
0: Mid-Ohio Mafia. <laughs> <laughs> what half of the boys I went to school with thought that they were. <laughs> right.
1: Like, she's rolling with, like, small-time... Small-time... I'm sure small-time dealers. We, and...
0: we stole some stuff and shoved it in our coats at Meyer. Like, mm-hmm. level of kind of of criminal history, right? But as you can imagine, like, everybody was just so frustrated because they're finally like, we can get something. Even if it's not yeah. everything, we can get something. We can have a lead to go on. But still nothing turns up. Years are going to pass at this point. This would actually go up to the Ohio Supreme Court. And she would fight it the entire way to, you know, not reveal any information. She lost every case. They tried to take it to the federal Supreme Court, who would not hear it. And eventually, when she did speak with the police, they basically kind of shared she had no good information to share Um, which I think just made everybody all the more frustrated that she fought it so hard. Police interviews would say later that the information that she did give really didn't help them solve anything um, once they finally got her to talk. By 2002, the Erica Baker Recovery Center closes. And although the recovery center closes, the investigation doesn't stop. Police are still taking, like to this day, are still taking tips. If you call the Kettering police, they will take the call. And in 2004, the police returned to their investigation against Christian Gabriel. And at, this is one of those things that I, again, I'm really going to give the police credit for this one, for not giving up, because as we've seen in a million other cases, it would have been common, if not easy, for them to be like, sorry, there's no more leads, we, we need to move on. we shut
1: this down.
0: Yeah. But they really, really wanted to give this family answers. They really wanted to do something here so the police begin surveilling christian gabriel trying to follow him to get an idea of who he is how does he work is there any way that we can squeeze any information out of this guy and bless their hearts the good old kettering police department just aren't great at this <laughs> um they got caught several times in this short mm. like they did six days of surveillance they got caught multiple times surveillance kind of cute but also terrible yeah again bless their hearts they they Mm -hmm. really really tried so hard thank you clattering police department nick again here's where i'm going to offer a correction after listening to the missing erica baker podcast it seems like these kind of being getting caught was a little more intentional than i had teased them about they kind of wanted gabriel to know that he was being watched and monitored and followed and it seemed like that did cause him A little extra stress caused him to slip and helped them catch him in some chargeable offenses, possession of stolen property, and that sort of thing, so that they were at least able to hold him and bring him in, which we'll talk about here in a sec. Luckily, though, in that time, they were able to recover some evidence of him in possession of some stolen property. So again, Mm. we're talking really low-level crimes here. He ended up being sentenced to a brief nine-month stint that he would serve in neighboring Clark County but it's pretty obvious to everybody the police Gabriel everybody watching that they really just wanted this nine months to hold him and to put some pressure on him which they do shockingly they managed to leverage some little bits of information in February of 2004 Gabriel finally agrees to meet with the Kettering Police Department now this is on february 4th 2004 just three days before the statute of limitations on this crime is set to expire
1: that's kind of wild freaking what wi-
0: a part of me wonders like did he actually finally feel some guilt about something that he was finally mm. like no i need to say something or did they really they're just the police were they was like, running the clock yeah Or were the police like, we got to get every single best man we have out here. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So on February 4th, 2004, they sit down with Gabriel for an interview. After being Mirandized and waiving his rights to an attorney, he gave a 90 minute confession. And this is the story of what happened that night, according to Christian Gabriel, when he told the story in 2004. On the night of February 7, 1999, Christian Gabriel, Jan Franks, Clifford Butts, and an unknown, unnamed girlfriend were driving around the area. They were reportedly highly inebriated after committing robbery at the mire, just a few miles from the rec center. They had been driving around the Kettering neighborhoods and ended up in the Platts by the rec center and Indian Riffle Park. Gabriel claimed that as they were driving... As Jan Franks was driving the car, Erica darted out from between parked cars. He said, quote, We were going down the street and heard a thud and got out of the van, and someone was lying in the street. I was drunk. I had a buzz. I really didn't see nothing until I heard the thud. Ugh. God,
1: that just makes my heart hurt.
0: It's really visceral, honestly. Yeah. Um, there's that nervous laughter again Gabriel says that after they stopped the car they saw the dog but the dog immediately ran away they look down in front of the car and they see Erica's body he says that they immediately knew that she was dead because of the way her body was quote twisted Uh. at that moment in the dark in the street, discussed what to do. He says that they were confused, scared, and very intoxicated. They grabbed her body, put it in the van, and drove off before anyone could see. And with little Erica's body in the back of the van, they went back to his apartment and continued to get
1: high. There's a part of me that thinks, like, they're addicts, they're inebriated to start with and the only way to kind of get through it is to self-medicate. Just numb
0: yourself even further.
1: Numb yourself to it even further, Mm -hmm. you know. But it's also like, my God, like how much does that cloud every single piece of any judgment that you could possibly, possibly have? And if they had just come forward at that time, they would have faced some trouble. But it would have been worth it for her family to have known, you know? It
0: would have still been a complete and total tragedy, but it wouldn't have been the kind of tragedy that upends an entire region. Yeah. And I think that that question of, like, okay, they were high, they're addicts, they were high on crack cocaine, but still, how? How do you do that?
1: I guess to me, there's just like this thread of your humanity that like, I don't know if you can drugs it away, you know, mm-hmm. but it, it seems like they did. And it's not just that it's a person, it's a child, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, like it. I, I don't know what it takes to do what they did.
0: I don't know how much of your humanity you have to have lost to do
1: that. Yeah. Yeah. And then to hold on to that secret. For years. That long. For so many years. Which makes me wonder again about Beth Lewis, the attorney. Like, I guess what I wonder is, like, who else was on her client list? If any of the other ones was on her client list, that makes sense that she would have protected one of them, right? Like,
0: It wouldn't surprise me if one of the other ones, like, if Jan Franks was on her client list, I,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it might have been others. I remember when we first did this story way back in the day. I looked her up, and there was nothing, like crazy shocking about her record or about, like, her cases or anything like that.
1: Right, yeah, yeah. She's not, like, a criminal <laughs> lawyer, like, that she's done all these, like, terrible things her
0: That would give reason for her to say, no, I cannot reveal this information because it would mm-hmm. harm another one of my clients, but I don't know, that's so why I could never be a lawyer because I'd be like, no.
1: Yeah, I just feel like, I mean... I have a lot of respect for attorneys but i guess in that like if she if if and we will never know what jan franks actually said to her but if jan franks told her any version of this story and she sat on it after the husband said that she could tell it Mm -hmm. like that does not tell me something good about your moral compass i'm sorry it just doesn't
0: but again if if one of the other people in the car was her client then there is like a legit ethical quandary there
1: There is. There is. I just don't know that I think it's bigger than the truth. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But back to Gabriel's apartment that night. So eventually after some conversation, I'm hoping some level of sobering, the group decides that they need to get rid of the body. And what My Gabriel friend, says again, again in the Super 2004, quick kind of clarification here. He says that they decided Gabriel to Drive would give Huffman Huffman many different variations on this confession. In Jan his Frank's first one, actually he claimed that he, he did not get out of the car Erica's to body. bury her body. He claimed that he was too intoxicated, he stayed in the car, and that the others went into the woods around Huffman Dam for about thirty minutes and came back and he wasn't 100% clear on where the body was. But as you'll see, he changed his story so many different times that it's honestly difficult to keep everything clear. <laughs> the huffman dam it is like an actual like functional river dam mm. on the mad river in ohio but it is also another big metro park mm. uh, we have a ton of these it has tons of bike trails hiking beaches and things like that yeah. again the, saying like we went to the, we buried her at the huffman dam that's a huge area
1: and there's, like, it looks like there's other parks kind of nearby. That too, kind of, so. like, yeah, they
0: kind of serpentine into each yeah, other. Yeah, like,
1: you could say you went to Huffman Dam, but did you really go to were you, any one of these other Were you at Caesars parks? Creek? Were you at, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you could have been at any number of places up and down the river and that part of Dayton. It's a very large scope of possible places, I guess, is what I'm getting at.
0: And Gabriel agrees to go with the police to the Huffman Dam Mm. to show them where they buried the body. Police search the Huffman Dam area through and through as best as they can on that day that Gabriel's with them and nothing is found. Mm. Police confront him after this because he kept being like, I don't know over there, I don't know over there and he does this all day his only defense is I don't know I was high when we buried her I don't remember and to this day so we are that was 1999 this is 23 years later search after search after search has been completed in the Huffman and surrounding areas like Carriage Hill Caesars Creek and other wooded trails nothing has ever been found not traces of her clothing, nothing.
1: And given how, like, dogged the police were about this, it makes me wonder if he was wrong or if he was fibbing.
0: I'm, like, I really need to know that for myself. Were you lying or do you genuinely not remember?
1: Because you were high as fuck. I mean, like, just, like, from my recollection of just like being in your childhood home area. <laughs> I mean, that entire suburban area is just, it's so many parks. Like it's a, an insane number of parks. Like, like, wow, how lucky. What a beautiful place to grow up. But goddamn, there are a lot of fucking parks. So if he said, uh, you know, let I me mean, it's like you said before, like it could be that they went to a park in uh-huh. suburban Dayton. And he maybe thought, because he was, cracked out that it was huffman dam but when you say that you were at a park in suburban dayton you're talking about an almost infinite number of options for where they could have gone like that's what's bugging me out you know
0: it's true and really all of these places are within 20 to 30 minutes of the kettering rec center where all of this kind of went down and i will say like there are lots of parks and trails and things like that there are wooded areas None of them are crazy, like wooded and remote at all. Mm-hmm.
1: but it would be it would be hard to hide a conspicuous activity in Kettering, Ohio. Mm-hmm. which makes me wonder if they did, in fact, like drive her body out to a park somewhere. Did they actually go further out?
0: Yeah, too. Yeah. Like
1: that's my other question.
0: And even I, th- I think that most recently, like as recently as I believe last summer, They dragged, like, Huffman Dam and that, like, the actual dam and Mad River in that area, and they, again, searched and searched, and they're still not finding anything. (sighs) Now, following that confession, Gabriel would eventually be indicted and convicted of gross abuse of a corpse and evidence tampering.
1: Which is kind of big, to be convicted on those things without actual evidence of a corpse.
0: Okay, so here is, I think, the biggest revelation that I took away from the Missing Erica Baker podcast. Again, guys, go listen to it. It's fascinating. Throughout the investigation, Christian Gabriel was pretty avoidant of giving a lot of details. However, as it was really closing in, at one point, he specifically asked the investigators, what would I get? Gross abuse of a corpse and evidence tampering he asked specifically what he would serve for those charges which means to me he knew a lot of what was going on make your own kind of assumptions here but i think it's fascinating that he specifically asks about what kind of time he would serve for those charges and decided what he would confess to based on the answers that he got um, they attempted to charge for vehicular manslaughter, but there just wasn't enough evidence to show that he was driving the car that day.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We're going to get to a point where his confession is going to change.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Although Gabriel admitted to a lot, the police could not prove that he was driving. He insisted that it was Jan Franks, who, I'm sorry, but that's a
1: little convenient, right? Totally. Yeah. The, and it the... was his
0: car, right? Yes, it was his van. Mm-hmm.
1: I guess, like, my other thing is, like, if I'm... And this is just me, but I think it's very convenient to try to pin it on her. But, like, realistically speaking, if we're all wasted anyway, Mm -hmm. right, because that's this whole thing hinges on everybody in the car being inebriated. So it's not as though, like, his story is like Jan was the DD or whatever. Like, if everyone's equally inebriated, I'm not going to have somebody else drive my car. Yeah. Right. Like, all else being equal you know, I'm not going to have somebody else drive my car.
0: Yeah, but I don't think any of them were in great, like, level of judgment. Right. At, like, at this point at all. In 2005, uh, Christian Gabriel was sentenced to six years in jail for that vehicular, or for the gross abuse of a corpse in evidence tampering cases. He would appeal the charges and retract just about everything he stated in his confession stating that the police never had enough to convict him in the first place and that they coerced his his testimony and he no longer stood by his original confession. Mm. He would tell his story again, this time changing aspects, saying that after they took her body, he thought that they were going to take her to the hospital, but instead they went directly to the park and buried her. His most recent version of this is that he stayed in the car, he stayed in the van, and he had nothing to do with it. His appeal would not work. I actually like I was curious because I just wanted to I wanted to take a look at the van that he was driving because they they kept that in evidence for quite a long time. There are brand new videos coming out because I think because of the podcast that he's still changing his story. He gave a number of different interviews over various
1: courses of months. So what about the car?
0: Yeah, let me just send you a picture of the car.
1: Wow. Okay, so what we're seeing here is a very rusted out van. It I don't know if they say what make and model it is. It definitely looks like that like kind of late, like mid to late eighties like mm-hmm. utility van kind of vibe.
0: Yeah, my uncle it's, had one of these.
1: Yeah, it's very um, it's very reminiscent of 90s childhoods but it's rusted out and the front end has sustained fairly significant damage like this car would still be drivable but the damage would be like obvious and notable Mm -hmm.
0: i think because of the new podcast like a lot more of like the interviews and whatnot information is being released none of this stuff was out when i did this case the first Mm -hmm. time but like reading through some of the interviews and things like The police really did go hard on him.
2: Yeah.
0: Really challenging him to be like, how did you not sober up when you realized that you hit a little girl? How did you do that? And they really kind of try to call him in every one of those perceived lies. But he just, he lies his way out of, he squirms his way out of everything. Yeah. The biggest thing that I think the police are always trying to get at when they interview him every time and the reason why they keep doing it is one, they want to know where her body is and two, they want to know if she ever had a chance to live.
2: Yeah.
0: They want to know could you have done something? Could this little girl still be alive if you had acted with a little bit more humanity? Yeah. Gabriel said he knew that she was dead because of the way that her body was twisted. Mm. But nothing that he says is... I can take as a fact yeah so although he appeals everything he tries changing his story and twisting it in a million different ways he would serve those six years and would be released in 2011 Mm -hmm. however immediately after his release like in the process of being (laughs) moved out he was transferred immediately to another jail facing domestic violence charges from an old from a years old domestic violence case and again the police just wanted him in jail because I think they wanted these answers they wanted to know what really happened to Erica and they thought the more pressure they put on him the longer they kept him in jail he would eventually break down and tell them And here, it's been a little bit since we talked about the Baker family, and I think that kind of this next series of events really does speak to their own character and kind of what they wanted out of all of this. When the Baker family hears about Gabriel being transferred and the additional charges and everything, um, it was actually members of Erica's family that attended the court hearing and pled for leniency and for his release. They apparently kind of got wind that uh, Gabriel's son was very ill, and they didn't want his son to have to suffer and be ill without his father. Wow. Um, Again, like, really good hearts on these people.
2: Yeah.
0: And I also think that deep down at the core of it, they were hoping that any kindness and any humanity that they offered to this man would lead them Mm -hmm. to more information. If they treated him with some humanity and dignity, that maybe he would release some information to them.
1: Yeah, because it's really, like, treating him with humanity humanity and dignity feels like a way of asking him to return humanity and dignity, mm-hmm. which he was obviously really, really, really lacking when that happened mm-hmm. in 1999, right?
0: And I think it's their way of saying, like, listen, whatever happened at this point we just need
1: to know
0: in fact it went so far as like when he is released from jail it's erica's grandmother pam schmidt that picks him up from prison
1: that's wild
0: people had asked about asked her about this like several times later why did you pick him up why would you do that to when you know what he did to your granddaughter and she said quote i always hoped if i talked to him personally from a grandparent's point of view we could find her, and we could bring her home and bury her. Mm. All she has all the guts in the world, and all the faith in the world, and it just like absolutely kills me.
1: Mm. Um, she sounds like a really amazing person, though.
0: Oh my god! There have been a couple of interviews with the family, and somebody asked Erica's father about this because it was his mother, and he said he's like, I knew about it. I didn't fully support it. I didn't fully <laughs> support the decision. But mostly just because I was scared for her. Yeah. He's like, I, I supported her values in doing it, I supported the decision that she made. I was just scared.
1: Understandably, <laughs> justifiably.
0: But again, no matter how much compassion the bakers or anyone showed him, like Gabriel just would not give them anything. And Pam again would kind of put forth this question that I really think kind of you got to the heart of. She said, quote, the excuse has always been that they were on drugs. How many drugs do you have to take that you don't reach down to help a child? Yes. And I really have to know what the answer to that question
1: is. Me too. I also, I guess the other thing that really strikes me about this, I've been doing a lot of, um, listening and thinking about just substance abuse and drugs and sobriety and what all that means in light of my own family which is rife with these types of issues and just been thinking a lot about like what happens if institutionally we help these people get truly in recovery right like Mm -hmm. not just like dry drunk or whatever but like truly in recovery we're really looking at you know trauma and informed practices and things like that like it if any of those types of interventions had happened at this point we're looking at what 19 years ago would gabriel have said something mm-hmm. you know if if we as a you know the universal we like h- had helped him get right back in those days right could we have enlivened that humanity
0: in him. Could we have opened that up in him?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I can always hope, like, as a psychologist, I have to really have some hope in, like, the therapeutic process. Um, you can't yeah. look at this grandmother crying, asking for help.
1: Mm-hmm. And if like, you truly don't believe that you can help her, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And, like, you already served your time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, I don't know if there's any other additional charges that they could bring against him.
1: I mean, if you played your cards right, and he did lead to a body, then you could get that manslaughter charge going. But
0: Only if they could prove that he drove that Only if
1: they could prove that he drove the car.
0: The family's fear has always been that Erica lived longer than just that accident. Yeah. I think that has been a whole community's fear after hearing this story.
1: Yeah. (sighs) I think from just like a physiological point of view to kill somebody in one go
0: in a car accident it doesn't
1: you'd you'd have to be moving really really fast yeah and from the the damage on that vehicle it was like um front end driver side damage Mm -hmm. specifically to that corner so it wasn't Mm head-on it was from a from a side angle right which also would imply to me that it would not necessarily have been guaranteed fatal even though she was little. Yeah.
0: My only thought, again, kind of looking at the damage on the car. I will, I'll post the picture. Again, playing out scenes in my head, what could have happened is if they sideswiped a parked car or a tree. And she got caught in that um...
1: But yeah, I don't, I don't Yeah, I mean I guess I, I don't I don't particularly see a reason to not believe the idea that she came out from between parked vehicles. Like oh, I don't yeah. think that that, oh, yeah. that doesn't seem far fetched to me at all. I guess to me I'd like the way I picture that is like she darts out mm-hmm. or darts. I put that in scare clothes, but she darts out, they're moving. She's darting out. She'd have to be darting out from the left to be hit by the passenger side or the driver's side, like, front bumper, basically, that front corner of that Mm -hmm. front bumper. So, yeah, I guess I just, I'm not seeing how that would be immediately fatal unless they were going at an insanely high rate of speed, which Mm -hmm. doesn't seem likely for the area.
0: But also they were, again, really drunk. Mm Mm-hmm. Really inebriated. I do think, though, if there was somebody driving that erratically in that area, somebody else would have seen it.
1: That too, right? Because this is like, people are constantly in this place, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's like, it's house, it's lined by houses on one side and then the park on the other side, right? Mm -hmm. Like, somebody would have seen an ugly ass, rushed out van (laughs) driving you know, suspiciously quickly. Or I think a lot of times we don't take into account how when people are inebriated, they actually drive suspiciously slowly.
0: Most of the time, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, and I feel like that would have been notable too. Like a creepy ass fan driving suspiciously slowly would be something that I would notice personally. I feel like in my own neighborhood, certainly.
0: And again, like, especially if you're in like a park and residential area with a bunch of houses where there's other kids that play, I know when there's nice days outside, like there's a million kids in our neighborhood. Like Mm -hmm. I, even if I'm just like walking, I am paying pretty close attention to like where the kids are and shit like that. I notice when cars are speeding down the road and everything. Yeah, yeah. I might not always like notice it was this car or this license plate, but I'm like, oh, what the fuck is wrong with that car?
1: Yeah, you would notice enough, and with all the, you know, and to put it into the context of this case, like. I would imagine that if they were going fast enough or erratically enough for this to have been a fatal accident, somebody would have seen the car driving in that state at some point. Mm -hmm. And even if you wouldn't have known the exact maker model, you would know Erica Baker went missing in the vicinity of this park. Oh, shit. I saw a vehicle driving like crazy outside of this park. I should probably call the tip line. I feel like most people would call the tip line with that information, even if they didn't know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, just to be able to sit, to place a vehicle, right? Yeah. Like a suspicious vehicle. Yeah. This is tough because it's like it's not like the police bungled it.
0: No, the they police... did a great job. Yeah. Technically, they did catch their guy.
1: Yeah, but it's so unsatisfying. Like it doesn't feel like they caught their guy, because we haven't had. I mean, they caught their guy, but they there's no been no murder charge and no manslaughter charge, so. Mm-hmm. It's not like the guy went down for what the guy did. Really. Yeah.
0: And that's why I feel like to this, like, again, to this day, people are still searching, like, looking for their remains. The detective Green is the detective on the case. Still accepting leads on if anyone finds them. And really just to give the family any level of closure, any level of answers that they can have in this case. Yeah. You know, her brothers have grown up now and they're adults, and I know that they, you know, her parents will still kind of comment on the case occasionally. So it's tough. It's tough. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it really is, and it really became such a part of kind of the fabric of that area, too. Like, it's the whole community grieved in one form or another, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously not to the extent of the family, but... It
0: definitely kind of changed, like, the feel of the area for a while.
1: You have that classic dynamic of, like, I would let my kids do this or that, right? I would let my kids walk to the park and I wouldn't worry about that. Like, that is not the truth anymore for those people, right? Like,
0: And I think I said this when we originally covered the case. So many true crime cases are about, like, finding this big scary boogeyman and finding this, like, awful, you know, person with these evil, evil intentions and that was just never the case in this situation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Gabriel did evil horrible things, but I don't think he went out that night like with the intention of it. Yeah. And it's just it was such a mundane thing that happens every single day of everyone's life is that there is drunk drivers and there is, you know, people getting high and all of that and that
1: leads to these terrible stories. Yeah, that's very true. And I think that's the other reason why it's like it's never going to feel, quote unquote, good or resolved or closed because it's just so senseless. So
0: I'm really going to recommend that people listen to the the podcast Missing Erica Baker. They're, they do such a deeper dive on this Um and it's really brand new they have some new evidence new information that has come out so they have way more than i do because it's a full-time job for them
1: true that i wish it was for us but it's not
0: but anyway that is our story our redo of a story i mm. hope i did a better job of it um i tried you did you did You want to tell us about next week's?
1: Yeah, let's wrap up. I am so tired. I'm, like, barely able to keep my eyes open. 5.30 is going to come real fast tomorrow morning.
0: Go to bed, girl.
1: So next week, we will be uh, officially in spooky season, although it's always spooky season for us, I think. But we're going to take a look at an old, very old-timey, kind of one of those, like, sort of classic true crime cases. We're going to be looking at the Velisca Axe murders. Uh, but I do think that some of what I have to say and some of what I have found might shed new light on a very, very old case that has felt like it's been lost to time, but there might be more answers out there than we think.
0: I'm super excited for this.
1: Yeah. So please come back for that friends. In the meantime, uh, please say hi to us on the socials, rate, comment, share, like all that good stuff um we are loving case suggestions if you got them send them our way and yeah talk to us we like it
0: yeah especially during spooky season
1: we do it's the most wonderful time of the year so uh let's go to bed yes please yes yes let's go to bed so uh be nice and eat cheese and we love you we love you so much We really do. We really do. And don't forget to come back next time for the Velisca Axe Murder. Whoops. Yeah. All right. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all. i been like, just acting really weird. I don't know what it is. Maybe my house is haunted. I mean,
0: I'm, I am certain your house is haunted. Me too. And you fucking love it. I do. I do. I love
1: it so much.
0: I want a haunted house, but I don't believe in ghosts.
1: Well.